Welcome to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm joined by a very special guest this evening. He is a freelance writer covering all things Hollywood down in Los Angeles. He's also the author of Max Random and the Zombie 500 and the critically acclaimed Danger Boys series. He is Mark London Williams. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Well, thank you, Jared. I know it's been a while in the world. I mean, so much happens so quickly that uh, probably no matter how long or how short it had been, we'd say the world was a different a different place back then. But, you know, if it was, you hadn't had an insurrection yet or any of that stuff, I mean, all that was really different. The last time, I mean, it had been a couple of years at least since we thought. Yeah, no global pandemic and no uh, no, no attempted... No pandemic. I mean, that, there you go. Yeah, right. and no attempted overthrow of the uh, United States government yet. Um, that's right. Right. So, but also, you know, we had, it was almost a routine. We were, we were starting to get into a, a routine of, uh, getting together for lunch at, uh, at Slancha mm-hmm. in, uh, Jack London Square in Oakland. Fantastic Irish pub. Um, yep. and, uh, it's been way too long since we, uh, indulged in fish and chips and, uh, and imbibed Guinness that's together. Right. That's right. Way too long. That's so, I even had a big, uh, you know, I had a memorable uh, medical summer in between, I think, last year. Yes, yes you stuff. have. So, you know, there's like more, there's metaphorical and literal scar tissue since last time. So Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting. I no longer live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've, we've relocated. Right. You've had your, your health right. scare, your health issues, and I'm, I'm glad you're... Uh, you're back to somewhat normal, but then again, I wouldn't call either one of us normal. That's right. You know, and and when we met a few years back, uh, we became nope. uh, fast friends, uh, slingers of tales of the undead, as it were, under the eye mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. of one of our uh, uh, you know favorite authors. And that's right. Right. Uh, it, that was a rather large uh, portrait of Oscar Wilde uh, at Slancha, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you That's know, right. It, it, just adding to the sort of the ambiance and the vibe, you know, and all those. And suddenly you think, you know, you're as clever. You too can be as clever to say something like about fox hunting. You know, the the uh, the unspeakable in pursuit of the inedible and things like that. So it's sort of <laughs> upped all our games, right? Right. <laughs> right. Well, you you know, you forced me to up my game because you you have an amazing command of the language and and you are quite the <laughs> slinger of the spoken and written word. Um, um, you know, we managed to keep up with each other on, uh, on the socials as it were, uh, the last couple of years, even though we have not spoken. Right. So right. in this strange time that we live in, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, is kind of what's happening in Hollywood the last, uh, 18 months or so. My wife and I always remark that, you know, at the height of the pandemic, it was, it was on all the, all the morning news shows. Oh, this one's getting Oscar buzz or this is getting Emmy buzz. And our, our response yeah. always was, it's the only thing out there. Mm-hmm. Now you're starting to see more and more films being released. The ones that were held back, like no time to die with Daniel Craig. And, and now we're, right. we're, we're getting that theatrical release of Dune. We're starting to see more and more theatrical releases kind of as it comes down to film and, and releasing and in the box office and all that, and, and even award shows, which I abhor. Um, what is your take on the current state of Hollywood? Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's a multi-pronged answer because on one hand, you're right, you're, you're asking for like from the consumer end of those, like, well, what's, 
what's a new movie I should be interested in or what's, you know, what's going to have award buzz, what, what's actually worthy of award buzz. And these are all kinds of fun questions to have at this time of year. Fall is, we refer to it as Academy season um, here in, well, as soon as, as soon as the Emmys are held, then it becomes Academy season. And then as prepared, you have like a month off after the Oscars before you start as a freelance journalist, before you start writing about Emmy contenders in the summer. So it's, it's kind of this perpetual self-congratulations here. But, um, so that's, that's one aspect. But the reason it's multi-pronged now is because Hollywood has, I mean, with, with the near strike that, you know, has been perhaps averted. We can talk about the perhaps part in a bit. Um, it, it's become also emblematic of kind of larger struggles in people's working lives and, you know, what, what they're willing to tolerate in those working lives after the pandemic and after they've had time to reflect. There's kind of these existential, almost philosophical aspects to, um, to work in Hollywood that people mo- don't, would normally associate maybe with, you know, life, life on a soundstage. So there's that part of it as well, kind of the labor part. Um, and then, of course, these incidents like this a young woman who was killed on a set last night as we record this, you know, on the set of this Alec Baldwin Western in New Mexico, there's that. And then there's, you know, we can talk about what's come to light just today about that incident and what else, how it ties into the kind of these, these labor conditions people are talking about. And then finally, there's the cultural, where Hollywood stands and kind of the, the worsening cultural, um, you know, battle lines here in this country as people, you know, see it as uh, captured by one side or the other and dispensing propaganda from one side or the other. And, and finally, of course, the, the blurry part of like where Hollywood ends and you know, online and streaming and technology and these things begin. It's, it's this continuum now and these entities, right? These, these entities that entertain us, but they also, like you said, we've, we've had conversations and we've kept in touch without talking for the last year or two over social media, but these, but think of how necessary and intrusive these things, how necessary they were during the pandemic, right? So, so all these things are kind of at play when we think about the role of Hollywood much more as a, as an idea, even than a literal place, right? The role that Hollywood has in our lives now. I think, I think you just, struck and struck a chord with me right it's it's mm. it's not so much that literal place anymore right it's the idea of it it is when we say hollywood how much of of what we consider hollywood is not even filmed there anymore right it's it's filmed right. in other locations but we still consider it all all part of that hollywood ecosystem um let's right. talk about the 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 last thing first <clears throat> because i find this really interesting the current the current climate of releasing films because you right. have, um, you know, you had Scarlett Johansson who, who recently settled her lawsuit mm. with Disney and was complaining that, you know, uh, day and date was, was never part of the, the equation when it came to releasing uh, black widow. Um, right. and, and now you have Dune that is, that is releasing pretty much simultaneously theater and streaming. Um, the exclusive window, for theaters to exhibit films is ever shrinking, right? It used to be what six That's months right. before something That's would right. come out on video, right? Now we're down to 17 days in some cases, if it's not day and date. So where do you see this going? Do you see more and more concurrent releases? Do you see it sliding back toward the theater 
getting that first exclusive to exhibit a film before it goes to streaming. Do we, I mean, do we ever go back to go forward or are we in this, this um, day and date streaming world now? I think so. I, I think it will be some version of day and date. I mean, Halloween kills did quite well, uh, right? About 50 million or something at a great opening of a, was it the greatest for a horror film on a week? I mean, it was this really fantastic opening, and it was in theaters, and it was on you know the Peacock streaming platform. So, I think when you see that more and more, and as people just get acclimated to that availability, um, I think it's going to be an ongoing, regular component. And so, when they start to have, you see advertising, you know, for big tentpole movies only in theaters, you know, Bond movies or only in theaters, The Eternals only in theaters. Well, sure. But for how long? I mean, you mean only in theaters for like, if it's prestige, maybe six weeks, right? Because the studios, they're not going to turn away that. They want that money too. Everyone who's staying home and who's not going out or can't get a sitter or isn't isn't willing, you know, quite yet to be back in the theater. I mean, eventually, hopefully those aspects will ebb, even though they're still part of the calculus. But um, I think that, I think now that's just it's going to be a regular part of releasing strategies. I think it has to be right. And, and especially too, um, you know, you mentioned six weeks, right? It was, you know, that was the the thing that we had gotten to, right? We were at that 45 day point. Now, like I said, we're down to 17 days or day and date. Um, no right. time to die with, with Daniel Craig is in his last go around as James Bond. I saw an interview with him right before the film was released. And, and, as far as I can tell, it was held for theaters because of him, because of his love mm. of the cinema mm. as a, you know, growing up mm -hmm. as a child or whatever. And he was the driving force behind, you know, waiting until it was somewhat safe to go back to the movie theater. Um, I have to admit, I took my 15 year old to the, the movie house down the street and we saw it on the big screen because I'm such a James yep. Bond fan. And I, and I had a feeling that was going to be the film that got me back in a movie theater. Mm -hmm. I've seen one film in a theater. I've seen two films in screening rooms in, and not to be the Hollywood elitist, but the reason I prefer screening rooms is because there's just fewer people in them. Sure. And especially nowadays, and you just you can sit several seats away from the next closest person. When I was in the theater, I was to see the green Knight with my son and my daughter-in-law. They had actually invited me. And that was the first time. And I had not been ready to get back to the theater, but, they were going to matinee, and of course, you know, here we're in California, and everybody masks up, so it's not like you're going to be sitting next to some some mask hole. So, so even though maybe there were people a little closer to me than I would have chosen in the theater, it was it was a good experience, and it was both strange and completely familiar to be back in the theater after all that time too. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and the theater mm -hmm. here in Ocean Shores, Washington, is a little bit old school. It's it's more like going to mm -hmm. the movies in in the mid eighties as a, as opposed to mm -hmm. that that Cinemark experience with the reserved seats right. and you know it's, right. it's what was it what was that thing you used to be called what was it um, the guy's name was Castle he used to do the whole thing with the experience where oh, you, William Castle yeah William tingler, Castle you mean, there, yeah. yeah 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 it's it's not quite it's not quite the Tingler experience but you know the the Cinemark's really got it going on with the the great seats and all that um, right. how, however it was still a movie house it was still that that experience um, you know that, that we missed and I and I often remark and talk talk to my wife about this all the time that's the one thing we miss 
in COVID isn't so much going out to dinner or going out shopping or any of that. It is the movies. That's the one thing we've missed missed more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So. Well, did you, I mean, did you end up streaming a lot? Did you get some Oh, my gosh. Extra? It's, yeah, yeah. You know, we tried a little bit of everything, right? I mean, we've been down, you know, with Paramount Plus. We've, we've uh, yeah. you know, we we had... I think we had Disney Plus going into it because we're into the Mandalorian, right? But right, um, yeah, we have Netflix, we have Amazon Prime, we have Hulu, we have um, we have all this stuff, and it's so funny because we can never agree on what to watch. It's hilarious. Um, so, and then I've got a wall of DVDs in front of me, so go figure. Yeah. Um, you're listening to the Get the Knack podcast. I'm Jerry Knack, and I'm joined by my good friend and special guest, Mark London Williams. He's a freelance oh. writer down in Hollywood, and he is an author of uh, several books. Mark, let's talk about that. Uh, uh, kind of go backwards here. We were talking about the current climate that we're in as far as making movies, and and one person got a lot of attention for this for the right reasons for doing things right during COVID and still making making product. And that was Tyler Perry. Never mind that what Tyler Perry makes is trash, but yeah. Tyler Perry was commended for the way he took care of all the filmmakers and all the cast and all the staff and, um, and all the folks that, uh, that work on films. Uh, I believe it's, it's near Atlanta that he has his movie making empire and his compound. Right. And, uh, he, he gets a lot of credit for doing it right in this climate that we're in. And, do you see kind of that trend when it comes to closed sets and that kind of thing and, and safety precautions as we move forward? A lot of folks are like, hey, you're not vaccinated. You're not working on this movie. You're not going to be here. So do you see that that is a continuing trend over time? Uh, well, probably before last night, I would have said yes, because that was my, you know, I, I talked a lot of, I do a cinematography column for one for a, a British man. It's for British cinematographers, so you might guess that I talk a lot of cinematographers. I'm sort of a one man Hollywood outpost. I write for some other outlets as well, and sometimes I get to like I'm talking to a, the production designer of French Dispatch probably in a few days, Adam Stockhausen. So I, I do kind of have some pretty interesting conversations with some pretty interesting uh, creative folk, and. Um, uh, and if all those conversations, you know, because they would, because stuff would come out, I'd be interviewing people about new releases that could only have been made. Not everything was held for two years. So I would always ask about how, you know, what the set was like. And they talk about getting tested, you know, two or three times a week and being distant, you know, having distance, social distance on the set and all this. So it seemed like everybody was conscientious. And then as of last night, we have somebody killed, a young cinematographer herself killed on a set because uh, according to the reports, people were totally, and maybe it was non-union personnel, um, mishandling the firearms in order for the production to save a buck. This is sort of the story that's emerging. The, uh, as, not to, not to interrupt and, and step on you. The last thing I read right before coming on the show yeah. was that yeah. Bal Alec Baldwin was handed this, this firearm and told it was safe. Yeah, but he was handed my what I read by the assistant director. That's never supposed to happen. It's supposed to be the armor. It's supposed to be props. Got it. It's supposed to be entirely the prop department. And in my understanding, well, I can't confirm this, but what I've been reading is that they had non-union. They let the union go. They do. I read that also. They, yeah. So these are non-union prop guys. I, I had read that as well. So that's, 
So yeah. nice segue, Mark. Great. So we go from we go from COVID uh, COVID protocols and COVID safety into uh, this onset safety. I'd read the same thing about um, you know the the non union folks were were working the uh, were working the film. I mean, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. This this no well, no you know goes to to Bruce Lee's son and and the crow yeah, and, right. you know and I'm sure it's right. not the and I I highly doubt that was the first time it happened. Well, this guy John Eric Hexum, who was a rising star in the '80s of TV, being sort of handsome, hunky guy on TV, and he thought he was joking around and took a gun loaded with blanks. In this case, there were still blanks, but he put it next to his head. I guess it's not a gag, but there was enough force that um, it killed him. There was enough force that dislodged uh, some bone in his temple, and oh, he died. Geez. Yeah, so that was the other day. So him and Brandon Lee, um, and of course now this. Yeah, so we have these. Every once in a while, this happens, you know, seemingly only on American sets, because it's another facet of the American fascination with guns, perhaps. I mean, you don't hear about this on any in sets in other countries, ever, so. Well, you know, right? yeah, and, and it's it's kind of funny, and if, if you watch uh, the Squid Game, um, oh, yeah. you know, the uh, the main character uh, gives his daughter a, a, a cigarette lighter that looks like a gun for a birthday present. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in context, it's funny. Um, mm -hmm. But again, you know, you talk about safety on set, you talk about, you know, accidents on set. And again, since there's going to be an active investigation and, you know, we have to use the word allegedly and all those, those types of things here. And we're just a couple of guys riffing on a podcast uh, you know, very, very sad situation. I don't want to comment on, on who's at fault and who's not at fault because we just don't know at this point. Right. And so all the facts right. come out and they have an investigation and that kind of thing. I just know uh, an actor I like Alec Baldwin, uh, and have liked for a long time is in the middle of this controversy in the middle of this mess. Not the first time he's been in the middle of a controversy. Um, but, That's right. but this would be one that involved, you know, uh, tragic death and, and also an injury to another person. Um, Right. So it, it's a shame that this this thing has happened, and and I hope uh, hope we get some answers uh, forthwith, as it were. Mm-hmm. But there was an interesting article in Daily Beast where I guess somebody was talking anonymously about people who've been let go, and they said, you know, all this, all this just to make some shitty cowboy movie, and um, mm. and that that kind of struck me. I mean, I don't know the quality of the script or not, but we can assume it's it's probably not the wild bunch or once upon a time in the West right, that they were making. <laughs> but what is, um, <laughs> yeah, what exactly? But, um, but, this, but this, the idea the people examining, you know, there's been a couple, the other thing I've been doing, uh, the newest thing I've been doing as a freelancer, I have this column writing about the labor politics of Hollywood with an older, an older publisher line below the line at btlnews.com. And I, I wrote for them for many years. And then we could just kind of, um, you know, things change and budgets change. And we had sort of an amicable parting of the ways. And I wound up being a columnist and British cinematographer and doing other freelancing. And now, you know, and they asked me back to do this because um, I'd written on some kind of labor and cultural issues for them, as well as just sort of the show busy thing of like who made what and how did they make it. So I'm doing this labor column about it started with before we knew for sure whether there'd be a strike or not. And the, one of the recent ones I filed is this part of kind of a larger discussion people are having with themselves about, 
which is part of this great walk away or great resignation that people are calling it, right? With people just not, you know, and, and you hear all this whining, especially on the white about oh, the right about, well, a lot of it's white too, I guess, right? But on the right about uh, a labor shortage. And some of it is like people are not willing to just keep shitty jobs for shitty wages, you know, or do. And so, so part of it in Hollywood too, I mean, like you had to just take any show and work these. And I've been crew. It's been many years since I've done it. But I've been, and it's, it's kind of, it can be kind of terrible, actually. And I was I was crew on a shitty production, where the uh, producer was cheap and treated people cheaply, and um, everybody left embittered from that shoot. Um, well, and, and you look at you look at some of the horror well. stories we've heard the last few years, like from the Ellen DeGeneres show, right? I mean, you know, yeah. it's it, not everything is is you know, glitz and glamour like we, we think it is or or we hope it is or uh, we, we uh, that we want to tell ourselves, even, you know, like daytime talk shows. But also, you know, you've heard stories for years about what it was like uh, at the height of the, the soap operas and how grueling mm-hmm. that was. Oh, right. Any, right. any even stars, even like the Jeff Foxworthy's of the world will come out and tell you how what a grind it was making a sitcom. Right. So, right. you know, I think that you, you really hit the nail on the head with something because you, again, so we, we can, we can go down this road and this tangent all we want, but when it comes to like social media, all, first of all, we're, we're an expert in, in the geopolitical landscape. Then we're experts in global finance and, and, and then we're yeah. experts in democracy. Now we're experts in race relations. We're experts in this. Yeah. And now we're experts in how guns should be handled on the set of a movie. Right. I mean, That's everybody's right. a fucking expert and I'm really getting sick and tired of it. I, you know, I like to think. And I, and I tend to associate myself with with folks like you and 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 other friends that are the same way, well read, and and knowledgeable about a lot of topics. Right? There's only a few things, though, I would call myself an expert in. And right, right but I like to say I know I know a, a little bit about a lot of things, and enough to be dangerous, yeah. actually. Right? So yeah, it's right. it's really disheartening that you know we. With the the uh, the poor poor young lady who was just murdered more than likely by her boyfriend who is now dead. Now we're an expert in CSI. We're an expert in criminology. Right. Everybody's got right. you know an expert opinion. It, it just reminds me of that line from uh, from the Avengers movie where you know, hey, since when did you become a an expert in in thermonuclear physics? Last night, am I the only one who did the reading? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. or whatever it was, you know, and it's, yeah. it just drives me bonkers that, you know, unfortunately social media has given everybody a voice and a lot of folks, I, I know I'll probably draw a lot of hate from the 20 people listen to this. Uh, a lot of those folks shouldn't have voices, but, um, you, you know, know, what are you going to do? You, yeah, I, know. I mean, I agree actually. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because maybe it's just, am I getting this? cantankerous with age, but I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear from everybody. I mean, not everybody, and not everybody deserves to be heard from. Frankly. No, I mean, unless, yeah. no, and and I wanted to talk to you. You just brought it up about the the labor shortage thing, right? And that, and that seems yeah. to be, and, and I want to, I, I try to do this anecdotal rather than just opinion, right? I mean, I have my opinions no. on it, and I think you're right. I think there's a whole lot of folks out there that because they get a little extra in unemployment gave them the opportunity to look for other opportunities 
rather than right. go back to the shitty job they had pre-COVID or find another shitty right. job. They There was a story I saw, I think it was CBS Sunday Morning. This guy was a waiter. Didn't like being a waiter. Didn't want to be a waiter anymore. And because of the right. opportunity he had, he had with, with, um, with unemployment and the extra money, he was going to school for cybersecurity because that's what he wanted to well, do. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he is not the exception. I think he is the rule. He's the guy right. that during this decided, you know what? I'm going to shoot for my dream job or a better job. And I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to take a class. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Right. And I'm going to get this better job. And, right. I, th- and I think, well, I think, that's it. I think people, the owners, the owners of, of the economy and of a society, they don't like people to have time for self-reflection because that, you know, from their standpoint, that, that leads to no good because people are suddenly thinking, Hey, look at this. These guys running things. Look at the shitty. Look at the shitty deals they're giving us. And wait a minute here. You know, that's yeah. why they're not particularly interested in educating a populist to any great degree. You know, just enough to whatever answer answer your calls at work. But they don't want they don't want people to have too much time to think about things. They don't want people to have too many tools to analyze things with. Well, yeah, and that goes back to the the willfully ignorant electorate that they've created but that's a different discussion for a different day um we're talking about hollywood and entertainment and 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 that kind of the your bailiwick right the stuff that puts food on your table so as we're working backwards through these topics now let's get into the that award discussion right i do not watch award shows you said something at the top of the show about the you know self-congratulatory self self-congratulation season is basically what it is um i don't watch award show i don't care for them i rarely watch a film uh that won an award i think spotlight might be the one that i did watch because it won an award i probably would have watched it anyway um but it but do you see us returning to kind of normal with the the volume of material that's up for awards well sorry because i actually go to the awards i mean i i mean which is not to say that i'm you know having a beer with uh, you know brad pitt afterwards or something but i I go to oscars and i go to emmys i thought now, that was Charlize on your arm i saw in that one photograph right. but let me explain to people oh he goes to Oscars. well kind of yes technically yes for example the emmys which i just went to not to have anybody wanted to watch it on tv i didn't go to the emmys with all the you know who's going to win best drama who's going to be best actor emmys i go the weekend before to what's called the creative arts emmys because unlike the Oscars, the Emmys has a separate weekend for their technical awards. We don't try and cram into a single evening. Yeah, yeah. So their production designers and costumers and cinematographers are all the weekend before. And that's the one I go to. And I'd be backstage, um, not in a tux. I have to wear a tux backstage when I go to the Oscars for their press room because they're that, that formal. Sure. But at the Emmys, I can just do, I can do business casual and get away with it backstage. So there I am. You know, in my mask. So, and I went for the, you know, first time in a couple of years, I was back at, at Emmys at an award show in masks. It was odd. The 12 of us, because there are three different segments of the technical, they were, there was a, the weekend was like Saturday night and Sunday afternoon and Sunday night. And most of the awards I was going to cover, the cinematographers, the production designers, particularly, they were the Saturday night. So I only went to one of those three shifts. 
And there were like 12 of us there, you know, all in our masks, all in pretty good social distance. All the award winners would come up behind backstage with no masks because they were encouraged to take their masks off um, in front of the house because I guess it looked better on TV. Sure. Um, and, well, and, and, and the photographs and everything else that go with it, right? Right. But it's then a, you consider that one of those Emmy winners died three weeks later of COVID. Uh, like the guy who won the um, the hair and makeup guy. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blocking his name. His first name was Mark, like mine. But he was um, he won for Bridgerton, and I remember him talking mm. to us backstage. And then three weeks later, he was dead. And, and nobody's that's, sure that's bad. You know, yeah. Well, speaking of of celebrity uh, deaths or people in Hollywood, uh, lost Peter Scolari at the age of uh, 66. Yes. Uh, many of us were first introduced to, to him as uh, as Tom Hanks's sidekick on uh, on Bosom Buddies. Uh, most recently of the uh, the television show Evil. Uh, and uh, 66 is uh, awful young to pop off. But I, from what I understand, well, he was sick for a while. Yeah, it is, and this is part of my, uh, you know, part of I think why Harlan Ellison would always come up with the rumor, like he pitched a Star Trek story. He said, "Well, the crew of the Enterprise finally gets to meet God, and God's insane." That was when apparently they couldn't quite. Wait. But there's considerably mounting evidence for that, at least certainly in this timeline, because you look at who goes early and who doesn't, and uh, the lists apparently are reverse. Probably right from the, the way I have them. <laughs> <laughs> if you're yeah. keeping score at home, Mark right. Mark That's London right. Williams has as the list is is inverted. Inverted list. It's look back. around Washington and look at the <laughs> right. Look at the institutions of power. See who's still here at an advanced age, and see who was lost at an early age. Yeah. And see, think about how the world would be if we just swapped those two lists. Oh my. Yeah, it would be kumbaya all the time. But what right. would us angry and bitter guys do? That's what I want to know. That's right. Right? That's have, right. I'd be, well, I'm already shouting at clouds, so I just, I guess I keep shouting at clouds. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I do think, Mark, that we're going to get back to normal uh, in the next year or so when it just comes to the sheer volume of programs and movies that... Um, that are under any kind of award consideration. Yeah. Do we, well, see, in part of it, when you think about the role the Oscars plays in public perception, I mean, the ratings for the Oscars are going down and down. I mean, most people, you know, with these terrible dance numbers of them, I mean, like people don't want to watch the Oscars. And I don't, I mean, I've, I've been to the Oscars the last, not the last decade, I guess, really about 10, I think I've been to now. But backstage in the press room, I will tell you, is a far more interesting show than, and shows probably the wrong word than you get at home. Because what happens is not not all the nominees and none of the presenters, unlike the Emmys where the presenters will also come back and do a and a that doesn't happen to the Oscars. The only people that come back for Q&A are the winners in each category. But they are not cut off by the band, and they can go on at, at much greater length and somewhat philosophically. I remember like when Viola Davis won a couple of two, two, three, and she talked about her life and her acting, and it was fascinating. You get these, you get a much better kind of mini seminar from people, I and mean, especially the people who can sort of hold those kinds of conversations. I mean, sometimes it's just sort of piffle, but that's you know. But sometimes you get really interesting takes and insights from people that 
there's just no room uh, permission or permission for that in the front of the house on the broadcast. So it's just a bunch. And I think, why, you know, why do this? Why just not have it some like stream it or something for people and have it just be more interesting for people who really love film instead of because, you know, Disney ABC needs to be able to sell commercials is why. But um, of course, it's just that's right. I mean, that's it's the, all, it's the almighty ad dollar, right? <laughs> that's right. Even yeah, though, even right. I think all the devices in my house are listening to me. Um, I, well, you, you open your mouth and two seconds later you get advertising for it on or some device. Um, but that's a, that's a, that's an, again, another discussion. See, we see how many tangents we could like go on for like three hours, but uh, nobody wants right. to listen. Yeah. Nobody wants to listen to us for three hours. Unfortunately, <laughs> Uh, this is the Get the Knack podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Knack, and I'm joined by my good friend, Mark London Williams. He's the author of Max Random and the Zombie 500, and also the a critically acclaimed Danger Boy series. Mark, it is spooky season, it is Halloween time. Yeah. And you, you'd mentioned earlier Halloween Kills, which I'm not going to even get into why that movie shouldn't have even been made, but that's a. That's another discussion. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about maybe the kind of the future of monsters, right? Because uh, in the in the future of technology in these stories, and I'll, and I'll explain, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. When you wrote Max Random, you threw out a very, very interesting concept, right? Because whenever we do these things, like, like when I wrote my vampire stories, you wrote a zombie story, or whenever somebody writes something about a traditional monster. Mm-hmm. The question is always, what what are you bringing to it that's new? And, you know, we, right. we can look at Stephanie Meyer and Twilight and now revile it, but at the time it was... It was uh, lauded for uh, for bringing something new to the vampire genre. So you brought something new with yours with nanotechnology, right? And I had mentioned to you Dean Kuntz's Jane Hawk series that he wrote the five right. five novel series. There's nanotechnology involved, and obviously in the public consciousness with certain wackaloons out there thinking nanotechnology is in the COVID virus uh, vaccinations. Right. Um, you know, this, this kind of technology and it's, and it's present in no time to die, right? The new James Bond film. That's right. Um, what do you think is, you know, we, we, we talk, Halloween kills is a slasher film. It, it is the, the progenitor of the slasher genre or subgenre. Mm-hmm. What's the next monster? Is there a next monster? Are we still going to be dancing in the human monster basement or backyard, if you will? That's right. What gets revived because, you know, zombies are now super popular. And when I, and by the time I finally wrote my zombie book, I had this idea because I'd been a YA author, you know, middle grade YA author with Danger Boy. And I loved the zombie genre. Um, Well, I grew up, of course, with Romero, who we, reignited it. I mean, we had our, the classical sort of uh, voodoo, right, and, and dark magic zombies. Yes, sir. Um, and then and then, and then then Romero changed the whole rule book, right, with Night of the Living Dead, and those are our modern Change the rule book. That, Mark, he wrote it. That's right. He, he, he basically, no, you're right. He basically, he, he basically took the old rule book, wiped his new zombie's <laughs> ass with it, and then wrote his own. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And today, brains and they come in to get. That's right. Right. And today, it's the Romero zombie 
that everybody uses in their in their films and their books and right. their graphic novels and everything else. That's what I liked about yours was different was because you used nanotechnology as what created these revenants that that you know were reanimated corpses. It wasn't a virus. It wasn't a a cosmic ray from outer space. Mm. It was it was nanotechnology. It was something we had created, but wasn't right. um, wasn't virulent, right? It wasn't a pathogen. Mm. So that's what I liked about yours. We- yeah, reanimating, um, reanimating. Although you know, my own in, my own influence from Romero was even beyond Dawn of the Dead, which it just knocked me out. Of course, like, you know, his Dawn of the Dead is essentially the Citizen Kane of, of zombie movies. I mean, that's you know, it shall never be equaled, really. That one, and, and, but he used it when I saw that as a teenager, right? Which of course dates me for people keeping track of a timeline, but I don't care because that's that's my timeline. So I saw that when it came out in the seventies, and I'm I'm realizing the zombie was, that was the metaphor. That was the society I was living in. You know, the zombies are all coming back to the shopping center. Right. And right. we were heading towards, we were heading towards Reaganism, you know, and that's, and so this was, I thought this is, I mean, we're, we are in, we are already in a zombie invasion, you know, and, and as we, as we've seen, and it's probably only gotten worse. And I think that's part of why that metaphor has had such power, you know, with walking dead. And all the and all the the zombie films and series and, and comics and everything. So by the time I actually got to do my zombie book, so after Danger Boy, I thought I'd be just fun to do a zombie book for kids because no one's ever done one, and I never had one when I was a kid. And then by the time the opportunity presented itself to you know write write a book for our our late our, our former publisher, or I mean not that the people are, but the as a publishing entity, it's our, our late publisher. Um, you know the zombie. You know the zombie wave had already been been cresting a bit, right? But right. but it was fascinating me because I always part of part of like when you were a zombie fan, like in the eighties or something. You know, they were they were always kind of on the. I mean, your, your guys, you know, it was always vampires and werewolves kind of holding down the house, but now zombies have definitely taken center stage. Yeah, and a lot of the eighties, right? Yeah. A lot of the eighties uh, zombie films turned more to low budget schlock. Right. So right. so as much as Romero's early stuff was was, you know, dark and gritty and, and avant garde for its time, you know, by the time right. we get to the eighties, you know, we're we're, you know, brains, right? We're into we're into that kind of that the, they're all B movies at this point and not in a good way. Right. Right. Not in that Yeah, no, no, that's right. Right. So I mean I, I wonder because, you know, obviously it's all cyclical, right? it's it's no. vampires come back around zombies come back around i mean it's it's the ultimate metaphor for for them right they all come back from the grave but you know and right. everybody everybody wants to do you know some kind of uh science gone wrong frankenstein type thing i think the the one monster that keeps getting a short shrift is a fucking werewolf where where's yeah. the next great werewolf movie howl was okay Right, I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah. It's it's set in set in England, and um, it, it's uh, an entertaining film. But we keep going back to the American Werewolf in London, the Howling, right. and the original, the howling, right. right, and the original Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. Those are right. that that's mm-hmm. like the Mount Rushmore of werewolf films. But where's the next great werewolf movie? I, I right. you know, I, and I'm, there's plenty of books out there, and you know, we is as I've become a published author, you become more aware of other authors and publishing and, you know, there's plenty of werewolf books out there, but where's the next great werewolf movie? 
Right. I mean, you and I write the Stephen Graham Jones mongrels, right? Which I'm, I'm halfway through the audio book, but um, that's, yeah, that's a great werewolf lead. Or listen, I guess, because I'm doing the audio book. <laughs> You're right. So there's great, there's great werewolf literature that's happening. Um, but you're right. Where is this? I mean, you know, you could say, well, there was there was Twilight. I'm putting aside whether great or not. I'm just saying that was like a werewolf hit, except it was in the context, of course, of va- of really being a vampire project. Right, right, so right. So where is sort of where is the, the werewolf driven the standalone werewolf project? You know, series. Where's the Walking Dead of, of werewolfness? And that's a good question. Right. It all seems to end up on the CW and nobody is watching it. So, you know, yeah. it's it's things, I, I don't even know what the names of the shows are, but, you know, they, they always end up on one of those networks with, you know, these, you know, heartthrob 20-somethings and nobody ends up watching these things. Um, you know, I think th- this is just supposition on my part, right? So if you go back... And you probably have a fondness for it as, as well as I do, you know, the universal horror monster verse, right? A lot of what we consider werewolf lore came from, you know, the, like the Shodmak brothers, right? Or or the people who did, uh, who created the Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. and and the House of, of Dracula and, and House of Frankenstein movies. You know, how that all came about, there's no... There's no folklore that we're tapping into. And it's funny you mentioned Stephen Graham Jones. I'll get to folklore in a second. There's no werewolf yeah. folklore before 1941, unless you want to count Werewolf of London in 1935. There's still right. prior to that, there's no great literature that we're tapping into like like we did with Vampires with Dracula and, and with Science Gone Wrong with yeah. Frankenstein or even H.G. Yeah. Wells who wrote The Invisible Man. Right. Where is there's right. no where's the, the there's no werewolf literature that predates Universal creating the the mythology. Right. So, I don't know. I don't know what you tap into. Is it is it again? Stephen Graham Jones is becoming this amazing new new. He's been around a little while. Uh, this great right. voice in in horror literature, and and he's right. tapping into this this native American folklore. I'll never look right. at elk again the same way after reading right. uh, the only good Indians. Right. I mean, right. you know, and, and I'll never look at basketball the same way again. Holy shit. Um, That's right. Right. So yeah. this new movie coming out antlers, it uh, looks like it, t- it taps into some of that, the old gods, the, the, the folklore, the, that kind of thing, kind of like ritual did the movie ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, you know, and Stephen King kind of scratched the surface with with Pet Cemetery, but maybe we we're headed toward actual real like Wendigo territory, right? We're, we're, well, we're be, get into that the, the actual yeah. folklore, the good stuff. I mean that would that would make sense because in a way, if zombies are kind of a metaphor for um, the hollowing out of human civilization and its ultimate. It, it, you know, how it deadens us um, and how we are deadened by it ultimately, you know. Um, then when the, the next iteration is, because the affect of that has been we destroy the actual earth that, that, you know, that sustains us or used to sustain us. And so now we have the, now we have the voices of vengeance from the earth, the, the animal creatures, right? The wendigos, the werewolves. So maybe, as, especially as we will, as we will get closer, closer 
uh, to the inescapable um, you know tallies the bill coming due for climate collapse and other things. Mm. Um, that th- you're right. That maybe again at the same subconscious level, um, these these manifestations of the Earth striking back will become you know the next monsters because in a way the Earth because uh, that's what that'll be what we're dealing those of us alive for the balance of the century or for some of us older and maybe till the middle of it, but the younger people through most of it, right? This will be the stuff that we'll be dealing with. Yeah. The the fraying, the fraying and the collapsing around us. Yeah. It's interesting. You put it that way because you know, the original gods were the four elements, right? I mean, when you think about it as earth, wind, fire, right? I mean, in water. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. Mm -hmm. And, it's it's interesting because I think and sun and the moon right sun and sun and the moon of course right um, yeah yes. blame the Egyptians for that um, but you know it was always a way to explain the inexplicable and you know it's it's kind of funny when we were talking it you know when we first got on the phone talking about that kind of thing you know or a little while ago when you were talking about your inverted list right what's the plan um, yeah you know it's I think Native American folklore. Um, is is very much untapped, and I think there's a lot of great mm-hmm. stories. I think there's there's you know hopefully the voices like Stephen Graham Jones and and some others can can really start to to bring that out and and start telling those stories before they're lost. Right? I mean, when right. you when you think about it, I mean it's all oral history for the most part. Is anybody writing this stuff down? I hope so. Right. So, I mean, obviously Stephen Graham Jones is Native American, so, you know, he has that right. insight and he has that, um, you know, the the connection. But, you know, I really do think um, that might be might be the next thing. And, you know, as, as far as, uh, you know, me, I, I'm a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, unfortunately, you know, he had his... his issues and his proclivities uh and oh, yeah. and apologies to uh to those of you who belong to the tribe uh for that mm-hmm. um but yeah. uh but you know he created his own genre right he created his own right. monsters his own mythos right so i mean stephen king stephen king has dabbled in in all kinds of um myths and monsters but they're they're they always come back to kind of the traditional right the vampire the werewolf the the alien space alien and that kind of thing and the human monster of course but um but yeah i do think the next the next thing i mean because we've done we've done bigfoot we've done the yeti there's sea monsters sure because how much of the ocean is on on uh unexplored but I just, I do. I think, I think the next thing comes from Native American folklore. It has to. It, it's a rich, untapped um, gold mine, if you will, of uh, of material. Yeah, for me, I mean, it's interesting when you mentioned Lovecraft too, because there's, an, I mean, it, the boom in sort of Lovecraftian mythos and and the old gods. I mean, I wonder if that's another aspect of it, though. Again, with kind of this intuiting the, the sort of failure of our current organization of human affairs that well the old guy the old ones predating all this 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 modern you know religion and society stuff that has purely um kind of reached its end point um you know what the old gods are going to come storming back and maybe that's you know to, to bring things back as they once were in a 
primordial chaos as we head full circle. So it's interesting that there's such a, you know, a, a vitality and, and interest also in Lovecraftian mythology, in spite of Lovecraft's rather considerable, you say, personal flaws. Um, that also seems to be kind of a powerful current as well. Well, I always thought it was funny that an anti-Semite was married to a Jewish woman, but, you know, that, that was, no. you know. There's a great documentary on uh, Amazon Prime uh, about Lovecraft and uh, Guillermo del Toro and Neil Gaiman and, and uh, uh, Ramsey Campbell and, um, you know, mm. a, a lot of a lot of writers um, offer their uh, their take and their opinion on on. Uh, on Lovecraft and, and Neil Gaiman put it best. I think that, that Lovecraft didn't sit down and say, I'm going to craft the grand mythos. I think it, you know, as these things happen, they, they tend to happen by accident. Um, right. you know, they just, they just kind of happen. I, I wrote a piece on my personal blog about the universal MonsterVerse, And one of the things that I said was that they created the first ever cinematic universe. And there's a, a, a an article out and I don't know who wrote it and I don't know the publication. I wish I did off the top of my head that kind of countered that argument saying, no, they didn't, you know? And I'm like, well, they didn't do it on purpose. They did it by accident. And if you go back and you kind of look at kind of how I, I wrote the piece and wrote individual stories about the different monsters and their arcs. Uh, yeah, they, they did. And from 1925 to 1956, this, they, they created this, this unbelievable catalog of monster films. I think the other thing too, that, um, and and I and I'd like to see it done differently. And I and I had uh, Mikey Sola on, and Mike and I met. Uh, if you remember, uh, KM Riley, uh, who we who we uh, you know were on the panel with in Oakland uh, at Comic Con. Right. Um, right. Uh, we met this guy Mike Sola, and he writes the science gone wrong Jurassic Park type creature thrillers. That's oh, his. Mm-hmm. That's his mm-hmm. bag, right? So I think maybe as you start to hear more and more about things discovered under the ice and we're going to play around with recombinant DNA and we're going to do this and that. And the other thing in the laboratory may be aside from going backwards to the, the elder gods, which I'm all for maybe the next monsters have yet to be discovered. Maybe they're going to be discovered in the laboratory. I'm, I'm a sucker for a good science gone wrong story. Right. 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 And I often talk about uh, Sci-Fi Channel's Mansquito as one of my favorites. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I think you know there's a possibility that as we play around with stuff that we shouldn't be playing around with, um, that maybe the next yeah. monsters are, are created in a petri dish, and they're not again pathogens or virulent, but you know some sort of creature that that has no business being brought back to life. Just a thought. Well, yeah, there's a revive. I mean, the actual revive. Well, that's Jurassic Park. Or you revive right what what came before, and they, and suddenly, like, all your genies are out of all their bottles. You know, um, what I always thought that was the thing about Jurassic Park. I always thought they were too late in that series, doing what was obviously the most interesting thing, which was getting the dinosaurs on the mainland. I mean, it's one thing. Okay, it's fun. They're on the island, but what's really interesting is get these dinosaurs. That's what's interesting is get them back. You know, have them smash them in and out burgers and freeway off ramps. I mean, that's what's interesting. <laughs> yes. It's not just them being on an island. You know. And <laughs> and I think you're starting to see that with some of these these bad television shows that have come come about, like Zoo and now La Brea. Right, you're you're starting to see some of this this storytelling come out. 
Um, and, and I, I do kind of like that, you know, nature reclaiming the planet kind of thing. Right. But, mm -hmm. but you being of Hollywood and, and covering Hollywood the way you do. And for as long as you, you have, maybe, maybe you can answer this question. And I, I think I know the answer to this. But one of the things that drives me absolutely nuts is this endless cycle of remakes, the reboots right. and remakes and everything else. Why do you think that? I mean, as as an author yourself, and and as as me one as as well, and I would love to see my stuff adapted in some way for the screen. But it just seems to me there's this endless supply of material that people like you and I and and others that we know personally and just in our world as as slingers of words, endless supply of material. Why in the world do they keep telling us the same stories over and over and over again? Right. Well, because because it costs too much. At least on the movie side, it just costs. I mean, this is why, arguably, why television, what used to what we used to call television, whatever streams are, uh, but you know, whatever online content is, but why it's often more interesting than feature films um, is because, especially studio films and especially if studios get acquired by large and larger media entities, it just costs so much to make one of these things that what these executives think they're doing is like, well, we'll have our superhero universe. Well, that's okay. Now we're set. We can have 10 years of interconnected superhero movies. You know, we can have talking about universes and they will always want kind of this sure thing. As opposed to when we came up in the seventies, it was like every movie was its own movie. I mean, okay, sometimes they're based on books, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, sometimes they weren't, like Chinatown, you know. Um, but everything, but they weren't looking for endless sequels. They were able to make one great movie at a time, or you know, maybe two, if you're the godfather. But those, that kind of philosophy for feature films, certainly, is, um, I mean, you find it with some indies, and you'll find it, you'll probably find it on streaming. But... Um, it's harder and harder to find just because of the cost and complexity of doing a movie now. And even independent films, and even if you make an independent film, you don't really even see them in theaters. You make an independent film, and the I, the idea is you get you do well in festivals, and then you hope that Amazon or Netflix or Apple buys it because that's a release platform. Yeah, my my so, my short answer to that is money, right? Because these tried and true stories make money, right? The Batman right. origin story, the Spider-Man right. origin story, the, uh, you know, Robin Hood or King Arthur or, you know, any of those, those types of, uh, you know, sword and sandal epics, uh, that, right. are, that have been told a hundred times, they make money. And that, unfortunately that's, that's what it boils down to. Right. Every so often you see something like, and I don't want to get into her, her other beliefs, but every once in a while you get a JK Rowling who hits with a, with a Harry Potter kind of thing. And right. And, right. And that, that hits or a Stephanie Meyer with what she did. Uh, I, you know, whatever you want to say about the content, you can't deny the impact. Um, or, you know, or, or at least the, the, um, short fuse popularity of it. Right. But for right. every one of those, there's four more uh, reissues of King Arthur or or Robin Hood, and I just I don't get it. I really don't. Other mm -hmm. than the money aspect, right? 
the money aspect, right. It's unfortunate. And it's familiar, so people will go, right. Right, exactly, right? Nobody wants to take a chance on, on something they're not familiar with or never heard of. I mean, and then it happens the opposite way in a lot of cases, right? Nobody heard of Ready Player One until they made a movie out of this stupid fucking thing. And then next thing you know, everybody's buying a damn book. Right? It's all it took right. was one Hollywood but, person but to pick it up. But the book is based what? It's based on all these IPs. I mean, the reason they do movies yeah, is they get yeah. all these IPs from video games. Yeah. So it's like everybody's childhood from the 80s on screen. I know, but you know, if you read my stuff that's littered with pop culture references and Stephen Graham Jones' new one, My Heart is a Chainsaw, is littered with slasher movie references. uh Right? So, I mean, there's a lot to be said for doing that, but are you doing it in such a meta way that, you know, uh, it it screams for, for Hollywood adaptation? I mean... I, I've said it before. I, I'll say it again. My friends and I, for years, we quoted movies. It's what we did. It's how we talked to each other. We we quote Pulp oh, Fiction yeah. and and Goodfellas and you know, um, you know, somebody give you a hard time. You 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 tell them, what am I a clown? I amuse you, you know. It, right, right. But that's right, how exactly. we exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and you weave that into your your narrative somehow, right? And and it yes. is because it's informed you is who you are as a person, which comes out in in your writing. And it, it just blows my mind that there's so much great stuff out there that you know. And then here here's the disappointing thing. Here, okay, I'll, I'll give you another example, and you can you can opine on this. Thomas Ian Reed writes, "I'm thinking of ending things." And it's an interesting book. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. They make a movie out of it, and the movie's shit. Mm-hmm. So, right, so it's a catch-22, right? Be careful what you wish for. You know, oh, yeah, we got all these these great blockbusters that are rehash and reboot and remake, blah, 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 and let's do something original. And then when we do something original, it's fucking garbage. So I, I don't know what to, to make out of all that. The book is great. The movie, meh. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know what the answer is. Do you? I don't. I keep looking no, for the answer know. in the like, bottom of this glass of scotch, but I'm not finding that's it. That's right. Exactly. It's just more decentralized. And I think, I mean, it's interesting, too, that younger people, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you have people with TikTok attention spans and YouTube. I mean, what, what that's going to mean in another 10 or 20 years when those, when those people are kind of making the decision, when they're not, you know, when they're the middle agers and they're kind of running some of these uh, entertainment entities, I mean, what? It's just like, what's that going to mean for, I mean, movies, the people are still going to want to sit down for a movie um, or people just going to want like a, you know, three minute experience at the near, on the nearest screen, uh, the nearest smart screen. So, so the role, of, which I guess also turns around, you know, comes back around. What's the role of stories and storytelling in a culture? I mean, you're right. You talk about how they affected us, and I'm that same way. Look, I'm living in L.A., up in Northern California, living in L.A. as a as a writer cover cover. I mean, I, I write my own stories sometimes. And I'm lucky enough to muster them out. But my bread and butter is I'm I'm writing about storytellers. I write about movies. I mean, I, I love movies enough. Growing up, I wound up, that's my career's writing, explaining the, the making of them to readers. So you're right about the profound influence of these things. But, um, you know, where, 
But then, like, what's the role? I mean, we don't have a healthy culture, right? So what's no. the role? So what kind of, what's healthy? You know, a healthy culture would have kind of a healthy, healthy storytelling, healthy storytelling rituals. We don't, we seem to be missing those. Yeah, but some of that stuff would be, it'd be terminally boring if we had a healthy culture, right? So a lot of these great, good right. stories come out of the fact yeah. that, that our society is broken. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. We're, we're talking about, you know, Halloween and monsters and, and spooky stuff. And, you know, you and I obviously have had many conversations and, and many, uh, many a dark beer over uh, discussing these types of things. Uh, I learned something very interesting tonight as I was researching the uh, latest uh, entry in my blog series, uh, my countdown of my favorite vampire films. Um, the movie right. Fright Night that came out in 1985... Was, right. writ was written and directed by a gentleman by the name of Tom Holland. And everybody's been on Chucky lately, right? Because there's a new Chucky series and, and whatever. Right. Uh, Tom Holland wrote and directed the original Chucky in 1988. So I found that very, very interesting. Oh, wow. Yes, I did mm -hmm. not know. Uh, he, yeah. uh, he was involved in several episodes of Tales from the Crypt and also was featured in Masters of Horror. He wrote and directed Thinner and the Langoliers by Stephen King. Uh, and oh. uh, he wrote Psycho 2. And uh, what I find interesting is uh, he was, a, in, in, because you are of a certain age and because I was a certain uh, military broadcaster and got stuck airing these things, he was also uh, mm. in an episode of 77 Sunset Strip. Wow. Uh-huh. And we're talking about Tom Holland, uh, the older, not the younger British actor who plays Spider-Man um, and yes. is, in, in, uh, is in a new movie coming out with uh, Mark Wahlberg. But, um, but yeah, I thought that was, uh, that was really interesting uh, to find that out. And one of the other things that I found, so the, you were one of the few people on the planet who probably would appreciate this and find this interesting. So my my first exposure to any kind of vampire or Dracula um, movie was Dan Curtis's Dracula in 1974, starring Jack Palance. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. later on, I become a fan of Kolchak and the Night Stalker. Yep. Dan Curtis yep. is very much behind the Night Stalker. Yeah. And it's all written by Richard Matheson, who does, you know, I Am Legend and all that stuff. Right. And, it, and it's like, it's it's this weird web of people interconnected that informed me as the horror fan I am today. It is just mm -hmm. really weird how that, you know, you don't understand it. You don't realize it, obvious at the time as a child. Um, but your tastes are, are being informed, you know, and then you, years later... You you learn, wow! These guys are really fucking good. Yeah, I mean, great writers, yeah, great, great, great filmmakers, and and it's just the stuff plays today. Go watch Kolchak on on YouTube right now. Go watch the Night Stalker. It still plays. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, I haven't seen one. In years. Yeah, I should. I haven't watched it uh, in years, actually. But me either. But I found it recently, and I put Kolchak the Night Stalker on on YouTube on my computer, and I'm like. Holy yeah. shit, this is good. I hadn't watched yeah. it in 35, 40 years. I'm like, this is fantastic. Yeah. And really, I mean, it kind of, you see, I mean, that's where the X-Files come from in a way, right? That's exactly where it comes from. I mean, seriously, Chris Carter said it was Kolchak that inspired him. He wanted to make yeah. a show like Kolchak. 
and, and yeah. you know, everybody knows Darren McGavin from A Christmas Story and all that. And, you know, uh, I love Darren McGavin. I think he's great. And, you know, yeah. I, I love two things I love. I love a flawed detective and I love a gritty newspaper reporter who nobody believes. Right. Yes, right. That's right. So, so those two tropes will never die for me, but, uh, right. you know, um, but, uh, you know, I've been doing this, uh, countdown cause you know, I've been doing uh countdown of my 100 favorite horror films the last couple of years. And I thought, you know what, let me switch it up. Let me do vampires. So if you'll indulge me, if you haven't seen the blog series, I'll give you, uh, you know, from, uh, th- I'm doing 31, but you know me, I find ways to, to put in more. I think I've got 29 in the countdown so far. Mm. Um, I started with Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream at number 31, mm-hmm. A and B. So we've got Lair of the White Worm, which is actually based on a Bram Stoker novel, the last the last one he had published before oh, he right. died. Right. Uh, Son of Dracula, which I think in the, in the canon and pantheon of Dracula films, especially universal ones, is highly underrated. It starred Lon Chaney Jr. as Dracula. Uh, Vampire Circus. Innocent Blood, which was really interesting because I adore um, mafia films, right? I love a good gangster film. And this combines vampire films and gangster films all in one. It was, it was oh, really, wow. yeah, real interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Had uh, Robert Loggia was in it. Uh, Kim Coates, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of your, you know, Tony DeLip, you know, you know, the usual guys, you know, hey, get the guys. Mm-hmm. It's all the same guys that were in Goodfellas or in this fucking thing. Um, and then... You have The Hunger, that had Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie. Right. Uh, Countess Dracula with the great Ingrid Pitt. Uh, Frank Langella's Dracula from 1979. Uh, Count, mm-hmm. Count Dracula, which was a BBC two-part miniseries in 1977 featuring Louis Jordan. Oh, right, right. Yeah, remember that one? That one's I on Amazon. Yeah. It's on Amazon Prime oh. if you want to go back and check it out. He's really good oh. as Dracula, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Vampire Lovers, another uh, Ingrid Pitt vehicle. This this is mm-hmm. excellent. Again, we're we're mining that that Gothic horror literature, right? Because that's the Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, number twenty one was was Dracula's daughter, which in nineteen thirty six mm. was way ahead of its time. We're into the hate. We're two years into the Hayes Code, and there is overt lesbianism in this film. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, number 20 is Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Uh, 19 mm-hmm. is the two-part miniseries Salem's Lot, starring David Soule, yep. uh, based on the Stephen mm-hmm. King novel. Number 18, Shadow of the Vampire, which is which is a very meta film. It's about the making of Nosferatu. Where, oh. Yeah, and uh, John Malkovich plays uh, F.W. Murnau. And, uh, oh, God, right. Yeah, great, great I, film. I forgot about that one, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah great film. And, you, and you've got Willem Dafoe, who plays Max Schreck mm-hmm. as Count Orlock, yes. right? Yeah. Right. Uh, right. 17 is Interview with a Vampire. So if you're an Anne Rice fan, uh, Interview with a Vampire mm-hmm. with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Number 16 might be one you've forgotten. Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. Ah, yes, Captain Kronos. I love Captain Kronos. Horst Jansen was Captain Kronos, and it's yeah, too bad they didn't right. do, do, do a whole series of those, right? Uh, again, mm-hmm. the Karnstein family was, I mean, the Hammer Studios was obsessed with the Karnsteins for some reason. Um, mm. Number 15, Twins of Evil. So there you go, the Collinson Twins. Uh, of Playboy mm-hmm. fame of of the early seventies. Oh right. right. And speaking right. of naked vampires, Life Force in it, number fourteen. 
Uh, Matilda May was only 20 years old when she made that movie. And, and, and wow. yeah. And Patrick Stewart was in that film and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, great, great, uh, space vampire film. Uh, number 13, mm. you know, we're talking about uh, squid game. Uh, number 13 is a Korean horror film called thirst. And if you haven't seen it, I highly oh. recommend it. Excellent film. Okay. Very different. Mm-hmm. Um, number 12, the only, uh, horror comedy on the countdown is what we do in the shadows. Uh, oh, well, that's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. The film is great. The TV series is excellent. Uh, just Jermaine uh, Clement and uh, Taika Waititi yes. have, have created something really, really special with that. Number mm-hmm. 11, number 11, I did as the entire Hammer Studios Dracula franchise, eight films. I did not count the ninth film, oh. which is the, the Dracula and the seven golden vampires or whatever. That was just so, mm-hmm. such a terrible film. Um, but eight films, see, this is how I get more than 31 films into the countdown. Um and then tonight, tonight obviously is Fright Night, and the headline reads, A Vampire Named Jerry. Uh, <laughs> right? So Jerry Dandridge, obviously played by Chris Sarandon, would be the uh, the antagonist yeah. in the film. Um, you know, it, it, I, I adore vampire films. I always have. And obviously, you know, we've talked about it before. I, I had to write vampire books, right? So uh, I've got one more in my head that's got to come out. It's going to be based on a vampire, okay. uh, an Irish vampire legend. And, uh, oh, good. Yeah, once I do that, then I can I can branch out and do some other things. But uh, but yeah, uh, I encourage you to check out some of the films that uh, that are on the countdown. And uh, it sounds like there's some you've forgotten about, and some you might might not be familiar with. Yes. So counting down to Halloween, my one of my favorite days of the entire year. Well, yes. <laughs> Mark, are you writing any fiction, or are you just covering Hollywood for uh, for the I, I for the usual rags? I'm writing some demon noir, but I'm writing it in podcast. Podcast, I mean, I was just like writing radio dramas. I'm writing an audio, and I have a producer interested in it. And she just got back, and I'm, I'm late writing the script because it's all me doing like the whole season, if you will, in between my my journalism gig. But yes, yeah, and, and this is actually talking about un, perhaps untapped pro being of the tribe, as you mentioned. These are sort of midrashic. Uh, demons, one in particular, Lilith or Lilith, yes. the queen, the queen of the demonesses, and it's um, it's set in post uh, post war America, and you know, murdered murdered uh, Nazi rocket scientists and government cover ups and uh, Jewish demonology, and it's been fun to write, Ooh, a lot of fun to write, and not yeah. and not for kids. Let me let me say no. not for kids. So <laughs> well, I would hope not. Uh, it's a little heavy. <laughs> Um, because well, it, no, it's interesting you you do that because it seems like the only Jewish monster legend that that keeps getting retold is the golem, and not that it's well, a he's, not that it's a bad right. legend, and it's not that it's a bad monster, and not a bad story to tell. It just seems to be the only one. The golem is the one. Yeah, golem sort of the greatest hit from Midrash. You know, Midrash being the, the trove of of Jewish storytelling. Um, there's Dibbucks. I mean, the ghosts. You know, ghostly Dibbucks and. Ibers, who are more friendly versions of Dibbox, have less of a uh, odious agenda. I mean, there's all kinds of. Cause I, I was teaching creative writing class. You know, I taught. Mm. Well, I start. So I go back and I just teach the elective now. But I taught Sunday school at a synagogue here in LA for many years, and then I also taught the elective. And the elective, the creative writing elective, was kind of was midrash, which essentially sort of Jewish monster stories. You know, and these kids would not even know about the, the you know. Uh, sort of all the things that went uh, bump in the night in their own 
out of their own culture. I mean, yeah, talk, about a, talk about untapped, talk about untapped right. territory. Jeez. Yeah. I didn't even but think like about Broxa, that. These bloodsuckers, and you have the, the, these worms like Shamir, and you have even demons, uh, the, the demonology, you know, as Modius, these demons that also cross over from sort of Arabic uh, sources, you know, these sort of desert gins and things like that. Yeah. And then Sol- Solomon with his rings of power and there's stories about Solomon controlling uh, the demon Asmodeus in order to get the temple built, right? Because it was beyond the, the ability of humans. So Solomon used these rings of power to 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 channel uh, the energy of demons and they were kind of resentful, right? I was looking for ways to escape and some stories about how they did and turned the tables on Solomon. All these Midrashic, meaning essentially for people not familiar with the term, uh, some of these stories would be about biblical characters, not all, but some, but they would exist outside of what officially is the Bible. Sure. This is kind of like, you know. It seems like the the only person who's ever brought anything like that to life was Ray Harryhausen. Right. I mean, when you, I mean, of that, of that, of that era, the, that, kind of mythology not directly drawing on what you're talking about but in that ballpark with things like Jason well, and the Argonauts bad. yeah, yeah right bad movie. and the Greek even the Greek myths yeah I mean I still use I'm doing some volunteer tutoring too here you know via Zoom which is the thing that came out of the pandemic and very sweet uh, fourth grade kid he's interested in all that and he never of course had seen Jason the Argonauts or heard of Ray Harry housing but he studying Greek mythology, so like, I'm showing him clips on Zoom of like, Ray Harryhausen movies, you know. Well, but <laughs> do you can't go wrong with mythology. that, though, Mark. That's you, right. I mean, exactly. I mean, but, you know, as I talked to, to Mikey Sola last week, because we were talking about how, you know, how we got from Willis O'Brien to Jurassic Park, yeah. right? Ray Harryhausen right. is the guy that filled in the, the biggest gap because we start with that's Willis how, O'Brien. Because Ray's in the middle. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we, that's that's right. how we got there. Yep. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about was how Harryhausen and his father, who built all the fucking models, was the one who informed mm. science at the time. Right. Because science had no idea how these damn creatures moved. So it was right. Arius Hausen and his father that was was teaching science how this stuff happened through their model right. making, and then, um, you know, the the Peter Jacksons and Steven Spielberg's of the world when they finally yeah. got to be able to make this stuff on a computer screen. You know, a lot of the stuff they were doing indirectly came from Ariazen. So, eh, um, Mark, it's uh, oh, it's all, you know, I think, you know. One of the things I was going to mention, we were talking about, you know, all these stories and movies and, and where they all come from, uh, you know, whether it be recycled material or original. I do think storytelling is in a really good place. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because one of the things that the streaming services have done for us, and this will be the last topic we, we discussed this evening, is they've left us in a good place of, of cinematic serial television and and the one thing that came out recently besides squid game was midnight mass which came from mike flanagan who did um the i just just started midnight mass i was thinking of you as i watched it because i know i kind of know where it's i know a little about where it's headed yeah i've just started that as part of my halloween viewing yeah and i recommended it for your sister and and uh on, on facebook and um right you know he's the guy that did haunting of hill house that series which i really really enjoyed um you know 
this this whole current era of this kind of storytelling kind of started with the Sopranos, right? And you you had it with Breaking Bad, and now you have it with Better Call Saul. Um, and you know whether it be limited series or or uh, you know year over year, like like uh, on Epics right now is Chapel Wait, which is based on a Stephen King short story, which is a prequel to Salem's Lot, starring uh, mm-hmm. Adrian Brody. Um, you know, there's some really, really good, just when you think there's a lull, something like Midnight Mass or Squid Game or something like that comes along. I think we're, mm-hmm. in, a, we're in a really, really good place. And, and I think, I think we might be in a, in a situation where our expectations of films are too high. If you, mm. if you were to go back and look at all the films that were released every year on Wikipedia, right? If you go back to the beginning of Hollywood, how many of those films could you actually say were good freaking movies, right? I think our expectations of films are, are too high, but I think we're in a good place with cinematic storytelling. Well, I hope so. I mean, it's true, you know, I say, think of all the 70s movies we don't talk about anymore because they were out too. But at the same time, you got to, you know, you actually got to see Cabaret as a new movie. You got to, you know, you got to see Nashville as a new movie. You know, and and those those changed you. I mean, the thing is, is like this, the director Costa Gavras who did Z, which I saw as an impressionable kid, and I'm glad I did. Like because it came out in 1969, so I see it as a ten year old, and it's about political assassination by the right. Um, and Costa Gavras being interviewed, and this always stuck with me. And when this interview, I must be in my early teens, and he said, "Well." The purpose of art is not to entertain. The purpose of art is to disturb. Yes. And of course, he's he's Greek, and he, and disturb has a wide range of meanings. Just as that doesn't have people think, oh, that means heavy and drama. No, it does not mean heavy and drama. But it means that it's only really worth doing and coming to if you are changed after you leave, after your encounter. The purpose of art is to illuminate and 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 open things up and change change the flow of energies. Within you and within a culture, within the culture that's making the art, I I can't disagree with any of that. I think you're you're spot yeah. on, right? I mean, art is thought provoking. It's it's uh, right. Uh, you know, it causes you to feel some kind right. of way, whether you agree with the art or not. It you know, um, and and no, you're right. It's it, it's. It's definitely meant to disturb. And like you said, yes. I mean, we can sit here and look at the etymology of the word disturb or look up the dictionary definition of That's it. Right. right. But right. I mean, you disturb a placid body of water by throwing a pebble in it. That's right. Right. That's right. So, and and I think that's that's the analogy, right? Is throwing throwing a rock into a placid body of water and then the ripple effect. That's art. Mm-hmm. If you, if, right. if we want, if we really, really want to uh, come up with uh, with a visual for it. No, that's it. Exactly right. You know, and so, and then you you, you slap the water. You you put your oar. You put your oar in the water, and and things stir in the depth. And you know, the, the circles. You know, the concentric circles are, are cast out, and they bump into other things and then suddenly you have eddies and flows and changes in currents and that's that's exactly what the role of art is yep i think we just came up with our own uh <laughs> with our own <laughs> i don't know mantra a mythos. 
Yeah, manifesto. Uh, manifesto. Yeah, like yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We just came up with our own manifesto, well, our own definition of what art is, and uh, yeah, and and like a situationist but older. That's right. Right. It's like the you know, it's like the stuff that, that Dave Chappelle's getting dragged for right now. I respect his right to say oh, yeah. it, and I also respect my right to condemn him for it. I, you know, it just exactly. Right. I mean, again, it, right. I mean it goes back to that definition of art, right? That's Dave Chappelle's art. He disturbed a lot of people with it. I don't have to agree right. with it and I don't have to watch it either. So, yeah, you know, yeah. and when we write things and when we put things out into the universe, you know, I mean, look, bottom line is we tell the stories we feel compelled to tell. And, and that's, that's our contribution to art, right? The stories that are in our head that right. have to come out, we tell the stories that we have to tell. And, right. You know, and, and you probably agree with this too. And I and I've said it a million times to other writers and creators I've talked to. They always say, "Write what you know." Oh, I got to write an autobiography. No, nobody wants to read that yeah. shit. No, no, it's That's your right. it's your life experiences inform informs your writing, right? And just like I was talking about before, I, I slip in these pop culture references because that's that's my life. That's, you know, and, right. and, and certain characters are amalgamations of people I've known. It's not one specific person. Uh, it's right. people I've come across in life and, and, and you you meld them together and and, and use them to make a point or, or illustrate something. And that that's how we do. And that's how we write. That's how we tell stories. And. You know, Mark, I appreciate uh, you uh, covering the beat down there in Hollywood, keeping your finger on the pulse of what's happening down there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, keeping uh, keeping your eyes peeled on the award scene. But also, uh, you got to send me links to this this uh, radio drama thing you're doing. This, this sounds freaking right up my alley. I grew up on this kind of thing. My father was, was into that. He used to record stuff off the radio before you could actually buy it. Um, I've got hit, you know, I inherited all this stuff. Um, I, I used well, to listen to, line, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Uh, um, if you want to beta read, I mean, if you want to actually beta, cause it's in the script stage, I, I'm even happy to shoot some scripts your way. Cause I'd love to get some notes, you know, I mean, that's when, Hey, maybe I can read for so. a part. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But no, my dad was into all that stuff. And I, and I was listening when I was commuting in the Bay area, listening to Sirius XM radio classics. And one of my favorite shows became, uh, uh, Johnny dollar. And I had never oh, heard yeah. of, you know, and I love noir. Right. So I had never heard of Johnny dollar before. And, uh, you know, the guy with the action packed expense account, um, mm. you know, the, the insurance investigator, um, you know, Bob Bailey was fantastic as, uh, yeah. as Johnny dollar. Um, you know, but they, they would have things like mystery and suspense and, uh, the new book I have coming out, uh, when it does come out, uh, the fourth in my, my series is all set in San Francisco in 1943 and, and the wife of, of, mm. you know, detective Dietrich, she likes listening to the shadow. Uh huh. Yep. Right. So, you know, I love that kind of thing. So yeah, let's talk, uh, talk after we wrap the show. And, uh, I would love to, okay. love to help you out any way I can or check it out. Good. Uh, yeah. Mark, this has been great. Uh, first of all, it's been way too long since we, uh, we heard each other's voices yeah. and, uh, it's always great to, to talk to you in any medium, whether that be, uh, the message on uh, Facebook or text or, uh, or over the phone this way. Been way too long. It has been, and may I guess I guess that all that leaves us is to not have it be as long the next time we do this. So 
Absolutely, and uh, you know, feel free to pick up the phone, give me a call, and uh, I'll do the same. And uh, glad your uh, your health issues are uh, uh, behind you, so the world's a better oh, place yeah. with you in it. And uh, well, thank you. And I, I don't collect <laughs> I don't collect people, and I don't collect friends, and uh, I count you among uh, a very very tight circle. Oh. So, thank you. Yes, I appreciate you coming That's on the show. It. And it's a, it's a circle, I think, the older we get, right, the more we appreciate those particular circles that we have with each other. I mean, that's no question about that. And, and the health scare makes you just appreciate it even that much more. So, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah. that's going to wrap up the, gosh, I don't even know, what, fourth edition of Season 5 yeah. of the Get the Knack podcast. Yeah. My guest has been author and Hollywood reporter, scribe, wordslinger, <laughs> author of Max Random and the Zombie 500 and the critically acclaimed Danger Boys series, Mark London Williams. That's going to do it for this episode of the Get the Knack podcast. We will catch you next Friday night when my guest will be actually a family member. My cousin Jason Steele will be on the show. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, we're going to be talking all kinds of horror movies and all kinds of stuff a couple of nights before mm. Halloween. So, Mark, yeah. thanks again for joining me. That's going to do it for this week's edition. We'll see you next time. All right, man. <laughs>